I'm Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, and I'm on the tightrope. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on The Tightrope, where we try to have a love and justice-infused dialogue and to keep our balance on tough issues. I'm Trisha Rose, and I'm here with my co-host and dear friend, Dr. Cornell West. Always a joy to be with you, Cornell. How are you feeling today? I tell you, I'm always blessed to be in conversation with you. I can tell you that right now. We got smiles on our faces. We got joys in our soul, and we fighting like I don't know what. Mm, that is true. That is true. I just want to thank you for being such a positive spirit. You know, I've been so taken every episode with guests from all walks of life with how much you inspire them and they feel so blessed to be in conversation with the energy that they give back because of what you give out is just an amazing thing. And I, I'm not sure if enough people really really appreciate that about you. I mean, I just feel like I get to see it every week. It's just, it's like watching people open up and, and feel good about themselves for the right reason. So I just want to celebrate. Think that's that got you. a whole lot to do with you. It's got a whole lot to do with your mama and my mama and your daddy and my daddy and how we've been shaped and loved and affirmed and empowered in so many ways in ways we don't deserve. You know what that's I mean? That's true. That's true. They're still given, right? I mean, both They're of still our- given. Who else beside our parents were important in forming you as a, as a child in terms of, you know, really giving you a sense of, of who you might best become? Are there any other people you wanted to talk about? Well, you know, I think of uh, this magnificent sister we're going to talk to in a few minutes and her leadership, her vision, her courage. I think it has to do with what Stanley Cavell called education for adults how we undergo processes in which we form our attention, we cultivate our critical consciousness, and we try to enact and exemplify a maturity that has to do with unflinchingly looking at the darkness and grimness and still having the courage to affirm a joy and a love and a hope. Mm. And that's what we got from our families. I got it from my church. I got it from my partners. I got it from my teachers. It could be a Richard Rorty on the vanilla side of town. It could be a Preston Williams and a Martin Kilson on the chocolate side of town. Mm. You know what I mean? It could be a bell hook stealing away in Kentucky and wrestling with breaking bread. Right. It could be listening to Curtis Mayfield and Donnie Hathaway in the midnight <laughs> hour. But all of that's education for adults. Right. Trying to sustain it before the worms get our bodies. Mm, that's true. That's true. You know, while you were talking and uh, I, I remembered an experience I had in high school with uh, a math teacher who was a geometry teacher. Uh, his name was Yves Volel and he was Haitian. And I was at a very elite private high school in New York and I was terrible at math. Um, you know, my brother is, a, is an engineer and he's all math and science and I was just paralyzed by math. And so, but this Yves Volel 
taught, it was able to convey to me something so much beyond geometry that I was completely captivated by the process of learning, even though I was really afraid I was going to not do so well in yet another math class. <laughs> and I got, a, I got an A in geometry, Cornell. So you, got you know, I got me an A in geometry. <laughs> Boy, was I happy about that. You don't know, it beats out all my other A's because I had to come from behind. You know, I had no, to. Well, see, your, your genius goes in a humanistic, social scientific way rather than a STEM way. Yeah, so that's why, well, geometry is actually a social science phenomenon in a way, right? It's how things fit together. Well, I don't know. The geometry that I encountered sounded to me a little closer to arithmetic, but I mean, I mm. could be wrong. I could yeah, be Yeah, you're wrong. probably right. I've already translated <laughs> into something I like, you know. <laughs> but, you know, this is why today's guest is such a, such a joy to me, because Absolutely. she has been committed to really dealing with the question of race and education and just a profound leader in creating really the best institutions for, for everyone's development, but especially for black people. She's just been uh, you know, 13 years of, of president of Spelman and many, many other things. And I don't wanna spend any more time uh, before we welcome her directly, but I just wanna thank Beverly Daniel Tatum for coming and being a part of our show, Dr. Tatum, you are on the tightrope and we are thrilled to have you. And I'm thrilled to be here. I want some of that energy. So thank you. I'm looking forward <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Indeed, indeed. Well, first that long, illustrious career as a uh, social psychologist with that PhD with the University of Michigan. Michigan, yes, in clinical psychology. Ooh, and clinical psychology, that's the number one, number one uh, uh, department in the country at that time. I don't know where it is now, but it's number one at that time. Absolutely. Mm. But what was it about building on this rich legacy of being the sister president? I know that we, Jonetta Cole, years ago, sister president, you became sister president 11 years. What was it about that particular experience that led you to become really the legendary figure that you are, I mean. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat speechless to think of myself as legendary, but I, I will say that when presented the opportunity to serve at Spelman College back in 2002, I, it was my first um, opportunity to be in an HBCU community. I think it's important to say that, you know, I am the child of Howard University graduates, many members of my family had been educated in the HBCU world. But when I came of age as a high school graduate in 1971, I went off to Wesleyan University in Connecticut and spent my graduate years at the University of Michigan, as you said. And then all of my professional career as a, as a psychologist, teaching psychology in predominantly white institutions. So 13 of those years at Mount Holyoke College, which is a women's college. Um, but when I was ready to assume a presidency and was invited to consider the Spelman opportunity, I knew it was something that I wanted to do. There was something about my visit, my very first visit to the Spelman campus as a, as a prospective candidate for the presidency. I visited the campus without any escort just on my own just to see and get the vibe. And I went to the admissions office and picked up a brochure which described the power of a Spelman education and the way that it shaped the young women who 
stepped onto the campus and emerged as leaders. And on the back of this brochure, there was a sentence that really caught my attention. And it said, this is your heritage and your calling. And when I read that, I thought, this is speaking to me. And I really wanted to play a role in advancing the mission of that institution. Mm. A few months later, I was named the president and spent 13 years there. And it was, you know, certainly a very formative experience for me, but also an opportunity, I think, to really um, help preserve a legacy of excellence and advance it. So it was a tremendous honor. And I'm always grateful that I had that opportunity. Wow, that's powerful. That's, that's powerful. powerful. I'm, I'm sure whoever wrote that copy was like, yeah, <laughs> we did it. It spoke to me. It, yeah, there's no yeah, question well, about that. Yeah, well, you know, it's good to hail what you need. And when it's so excellent and wonderful, that's that's terrific when it when it turns out that way. So tell me, I mean, as you know, we were talking before our episode started and I had like 10,000 questions. So I'll try to leave some room for, for Professor West over here. No, but <laughs> you do your wonderful you do your wonderful thing you do thank every you. week every week thank you darling but i i'm really curious about well i'll just start wherever i'll just throw the dart the question of what to do with the impact of racism and sexism on learning is a really big problem for, for me to, to figure out myself. And I, I imagine some of our listeners are wondering too, because on the one hand, you wanna be able to say that people can overcome the circumstances that they're in if they are problematic, however they are systematically problematic. But at the same time, we wanna be honest that all kinds of forms of racism and sexism and homophobia and so on really challenge people's capacity to reach their highest heights. And so as a clinical psychologist with all of that research experience behind you and all of your incredible publications and your experience leading Spelman, can you shed some light on how we should think about that problem? What are some of the hurdles and what are some of the best ways for us to, to really overcome them? Fundamentally, all of us as human beings want to feel seen, heard, and understood. You know, that's just foundational to who we are as human beings. And if we think about the education system as deeply relational, we need to feel seen, heard, and understood in that educational relationship. You know, I heard you talking about your experience in geometry. And what I thought about was that A, sure, was the result of your hard work, but you were motivated to put out that hard work because of the relationship that you felt with your geometry teacher. If you had felt invisible in that class, my guess is you would not have delivered an A performance. So when we think about whether it's young children, you know, just starting in pre-K and kindergarten, or whether it's college students, we are thinking about environments where people want to be seen and affirmed. I often talk about what I call the ABCs, affirming identity, building community, cultivating leadership. The A, affirming identity, I think is so foundational because it speaks to that need to feel respected, um, affirmed in who you are in all of your identities, right? Mm -hmm. I sometimes, when I'm speaking to educators, ask them to imagine that we're all in a room together having a group photo taken. And if we got a copy of that photo back as a memento of the occasion, we would all do the same thing when we first got that picture. We would look for ourselves in it. 
you know, we would look to see how did I turn out? Am I smiling? Are my eyes open? You know, where do I fit in this picture? But if we think about the fact that so many of our young people are stepping into school environments, that's like a big photograph, and they are looking for themselves in it and yet not finding themselves there. When you know you were in the room when the picture was taken, but you're not in the photograph that's been handed to you, you might first ask, what's wrong with this picture? But if it happens over and over and over again, Mm. you're going to start to ask not what's wrong with this picture, but what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me or people like me that we're always left out of the picture? And it is, um, I think, a very important point that often gets overlooked. You know, you hear people talking about what's required to foster literacy. Um, You know, how parents need to talk to their children and build their language capacity and work on what's called the reading brain. But we don't hear people talking about what kids are being asked to read. You know, does what they're being asked to read reflect their experience? Is it affirming or is it somehow soul destroying? So these are just, you know, that's just one basic question. But the A, affirming identity is really critical to that. B, building community, when we think about schools, we have to think about what it means to have a sense of belonging. We know that if you feel like you belong someplace, you will persist there. But if you don't feel like you belong, you may withdraw. A lot of the community building activities that schools at whatever level, whether you're talking about K through 12 or higher ed, a lot of those community building activities are time-tested, time-worn, um, but but as I like to say, if you do what you always did, you will get what you always got. And a lot of that sense of shared community doesn't take in the A, doesn't, doesn't think about the affirming identity. You know, imagine if we we're taking that group photo, we could say that's a community building activity, but unless the photographer is really intentional about making sure that everyone can see themselves in the picture, um, then it's not going to be an effective way to bring people together. So the B and the A have to go together. And the C, we don't talk much about this either, but I think it's really important, particularly in the 21st century. Cultivating leadership, in my mind, is about helping the young people we're educating be ready for the 21st century, be able to deal with people who are different from themselves, be able to connect across lines of difference. It's still the case in the United States that most people are growing up in segregated communities and that they're going to segregated schools, certainly if they're in public institutions. And if they get to college, the college environment, the higher ed environment might be the most diverse environment they've ever been in. But whether they get that education in a university setting or in the military or someplace else, if you haven't learned how to engage with people whose background is different from your own in that respectful, affirming way, you are essentially becoming, in my mind, a social dinosaur. And we want to be preparing our students for leadership, not for um, irrelevance. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. No, it, it just strikes me as I mean, part of the very rich legacy that you were, uh, you left at Spelman and you enacted when you were there, and you had been doing this even prior to Spelman, is the connecting of identity to integrity. So that if we talk about inclusion in a narrow way, and the folk who are already on the inside 
are not tied to serving others, then you're just being included within a context with just more money, more greed, more status, more position. Whereas we, are, we want people who look like us, but we also, you've always connected it to integrity, to honesty, to decency, most importantly, service to others. You, you're a servant leader. Mm -hmm. I saw that in 2009 when you were kind enough to invite me to give that commencement address in Eddie Long's church. Ooh, did we have a time that evening? Ooh. Indeed. And that was that was a courageous thing because I was, you know, I'm not the most popular person at that particular <laughs> moment with my dear brother Obama and I going at it like that. But see, that 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 President Taylor, Sister Beverly just know that we're gonna bring Brother West in, we're gonna have his voice, we're gonna wrestle with this, and it was magnificent. But what, what came clear was your service orientation. Mm. So that the life of the mind. The world of ideas became a site for a display of integrity, not just a display of narrow identity. Right, you know what I mean? Because right. thugs and gangsters come in all colors. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. They have they identity all, too. <laughs> and all genders, no doubt all, about genders, that. all sexual orientation. And, and part of your greatness there as a leader at Spelman was to connect that identity to that rich tradition of integrity, spiritual, mm. moral, and so forth. How were you able to do that? Where did that come from in your life? I think a lot about the fact that I, one of the reasons I pay so much attention to including others is that I grew up in an environment where it was easy to be left out. And what I mean by that is I was actually born in Tallahassee, Florida in 1954. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. And the, um, but my parents moved out of the South to Massachusetts in 1958. I grew up in a small town, Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Mm. And the, um, my father was a college professor. He was an art professor. And he became the first African-American professor at a small school called Bridgewater State College, now known as Bridgewater State University. And so there we were in 1958 in this small New England town, wow. about 30 miles from Boston. And I was most of the time the only black kid in my class. And, uh, you know, that was from first grade through high school. And so my goal was to get out of Bridgewater. <laughs> um, but, but, but one of the things that I think I learned in that context was that there were a lot of well-intentioned people who just didn't know anyone different from themselves. And at the same time, there were also people who would be quick to leave you out. I had a mother who was very, my, both of my parents were educators. My mother became a um, reading teacher, fifth grade reading teacher after her kids were launched into the school system. And she was always trying to figure out how to connect with her students, find the right text for them to read, you know, to foster their excitement about reading. My mother taught me to read. I was a reader at three um, and started school already knowing how to read because of her um, interest in reading and learning from her. And so all of that is to say that on the one hand, I had this experience of being seen as special. I'm gonna put special in quotes there because I was this advanced reader. When I got to first grade, I skipped the second grade. I went straight from first grade to third grade because of my reading ability. Uh, I graduated from high school at the age of 16. 
and my father, as I said, was, you know, well known in this small town because he was the only at the time black professor at the institution. And so there's a way in which people will look at you and want to treat you as exceptional. And yet you come to understand that they will also project their stereotypes onto you in a way. So there's a complexity of experience, both being in some ways an insider and an outsider that I grew up with that I think has really, looking back now over six plus decades, I could say has really helped me think about what it means to be in and out and why it's so important to draw the circle in a way that includes everyone. Mm. You know, I think that's very true. Not everyone who has those experiences comes to such a appropriate, generous conclusion about them though, right? Because some people feel excluded and then all they want to do is be included and they don't care who else is included. <laughs> They're like, get out the way. I'm, you know, I didn't get my spot. So, um, but, but that's, a, that's, a, that's a powerful description of, of what I think comes through in so much of your work, which is, you know, you're asking such fundamental questions wondering genuinely, you know, why are these situations like this? What are the experiences of young people and how can we grasp it in the right way, right? In the, in the fullness of the experience. And I mean, and your book, the one for which, you know, you're widely known, I mean, you're known for many books, but probably the one that most young people read is the Why Are All the Kids, Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria. And it landed back on the bestsellers list after 23 years. How do you, first of all, may this happen to all of us? <laughs> your book's 23 years old and people are running to go get it off the shelf. Why, how do you account for this? And, you know, what, what's some of the new responses that you're getting for this classic? I mean, I think it's an amazing book, but I mean, you don't always get a bestseller response 23 years later. So what, what do you think's going on? Well, you're absolutely right about the uniqueness of that situation. But the original book was written in the late 90s, published in 1997. And uh, when I was stepping away from my role as president in 2015, it was with the intention of spending a couple of years updating the book because part of what I had been learning at Spelman was just the generational shift. The students that I knew and taught at Mount Holyoke in the late 90s, those folks are in their 40s, some of them pushing 50 now, right? And so fast forward, I'm at Spelman starting in 2002 through 2015, interacting with students who weren't alive when that book was written in 97, mm. and really wanting to think about what was the their experience of the last 20 years. You know, let's say you were born in the year 2000. Now you're 20 years old. What has your view of the world been shaped by? And how does that, um, our understanding of race and racism in our society, how it shapes identity um, and ultimately what we can do with it. What does that look like through the lens of a, a not even a millennial because now it's beyond millennials, right? The, but through the lens of um, a, a 21st century young person. So I really wanted to reflect on that. And I wrote this prologue, which my editor said is the longest prologue in history, probably, um, you know, 70 plus pages, <laughs> in which I was reflecting on what had changed in the last 20 years. And when I thought about it, I was really struck by this because think about this. People would ask me a lot when I was working on the new version, the 20th anniversary edition. Well, what's changed? You know, what's different? Are they still sitting together in the cafeteria? And we know the answer is yes, Black students are still sitting together in the cafeteria. But when I thought about that question, it would often be framed as, well, isn't it better? Hasn't anything gotten better? 
And when I thought about that question from the mm. point of view of someone born in 1997, I wasn't sure that the answer would be yes. If you ask me, born in 1954 in Jim Crow, Florida, Tallahassee, Florida, have things gotten better since that time? The answer would, of course, I would have to say, yes, the end, things have gotten better from you know my parents' circumstance. In 1954, just to put this in context, one of the reasons we left Tallahassee was my father, who was teaching at the time at Florida A&M, had a bachelor's degree from Howard, a master's and MFA from the University of Iowa, and wanted to get a doctorate. In 1954, even after Brown, he could not attend Florida State University, which offered the degree he wanted, but only to white people, right? It was still a whites-only institution. So what did the state of Florida do after Brown versus Board of Education? They said, okay, we will pay your transportation out of the state. My dad got his degree from Penn State. He commuted back and forth between Tallahassee, Florida and State College, Pennsylvania to get that doctorate because he couldn't go across town to Florida State University. When I tell people that story today, people are like, what? That's ridiculous. Well, it was common practice in the 50s. Today, Florida State's a very diverse institution. I've spoken there a few times and there's a statue erected to the first students who desegregated the institution. It's a very different time and place than in 1954. So if, if you know that, if that's your family history and someone says, are things better? I would say, sure. You know, I went to the University of Michigan. My kids went to the colleges of their choice. They didn't have to think about which ones were available to them the way my father did. But if you were born in 1997, you're not thinking about that either because that's long been established. If you were born in 1997, you were four years old in 2001 when 9-11 hit. And even if you don't remember that, that experience, that the sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric, the um, us them language, the sense of the United States is under attack shaped your experience in some significant ways. When you were 11, 2008, Barack Obama was elected, but before that, the economy tanked, right? And so maybe your family struggled with housing issues or financial insecurity because of the Great Recession. But then President Obama is elected in 2008, and from the time that you were 11 to the time that you were 19, that eight-year period was shaped by seeing a black family in the White House and people telling you that we are in a post-racial moment. Though that narrative, that post-racial narrative was challenged certainly by things like the death of the killing of Trayvon Martin when you were 15, 2012. If you were born in 1997, you're 15 when that happened. And maybe you identified with Trayvon Martin if you're a young black adolescent um, and could that happen to you and how do you think about that? And then of course the emergence of Black Lives Matter. Um, following that 2016, you are 19 years old and listening to the rhetoric of candidate Trump, then elected President Trump, celebrated by white nationalists parading on you know, Pennsylvania Avenue shortly thereafter. And then people will say to you, person born in 1997, is it getting better? Maybe not, right? <laughs> you know, maybe not through your lens of that 20 year time span. 
So I so it just seemed to me that it was important to kind of look at that set of circumstances and to think about what had changed, not just our demographics, which certainly have, but our political context, the polarization that we see, but also the psychology that we understand. Um, psychology has changed in the last 20 years. We talk about things every day in popular culture now, unconscious bias, microaggressions, stereotype threat. Those were ideas that were just starting to percolate and be discussed and researched in the late 90s, early 2000s. If you look at the 1997 version of my book, you won't find the phrase stereotype threat. I hadn't read the article yet. You know, it wasn't until after that book came out that I learned about that um, concept put forth by Claude Steele. It wasn't until really the 2000s that the work around unconscious bias that so many of us are familiar with today was being published. So there were ideas that needed to be enhanced and explored and expanded upon, even in this changing social context. Mm. Now you remind me of another dissertation written at University of Michigan on stereotype threats by a young, young Travis. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Your Indeed. brilliant son. And Indeed. the wonderful work that he's been doing, and of course, your husband, Travis, too. But I have a hypothesis, and both of y'all tell me what you think about this. Because when I saw your book on the bestseller, it blew my mind, too. I said, that, that's, that's unprecedented to come back again. Sister Tricia is so right. But when I think of both of your works, you and Sister Tricia, it reminds me of Plato. Because when you get a foundational theorist of education who was concerned about looking at the world through the lens of young people. Because you remember Plato begins with Socrates has to pass on the generation of Paideia to Andamatus and Glucon, the young generation who's looking to him. And Thrasymachus comes along and says, might makes right, greed is good, you can dominate, manipulate. And the young people are looking to Socrates as an alternative way of viewing the world. And they have to become educated into adulthood to not opt for Thrasymachus. Well, neoliberal education these days, it doesn't put a premium on looking at the world through the lens of young people. See, so you come along and write the work on, on, on hip hop, and people think, we don't give a damn about these young folk out here. We concerned about our careers and everything else. Mm. Here, you, you writing the text on what is it about the young folk as not just where they're sitting, but metaphorically, what's in their minds, what's in their hearts, what's in their souls? This whole notion of being preoccupied with young people. We know Socrates will be put to death because of his corruption of the youth, mm. his impact on the youth. That, that's a compliment. You know, from the status quo. That's quite a compliment. It is. I'll take it. Exactly. And, and, and we can talk about Jesus, too. I mean, you know, Jesus was the only prophetic figure who put children at the center of his vision. Suffer mm. the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For mm. such is the kingdom of God. Because they're the nobodies. They're the non-entities. Mm. They're the afterthoughts for adult, for the adult world. You see what I mean? So that here, the young folk hungry, young Black Lives Matter movement, young movement, mm -hmm. concerned about how will we gain access to the riches of a tradition, forms of education that can empower us, that can enable us, and hence, boom, your book comes back strong, tremendously in that way. Now, is, does that hypothesis make sense? 
Well, I think it does. Uh, so what I am appreciating is not just, you know, obviously my book emerged this summer on the bestseller list again, but there, it was in so much other company, right? You know, a lot of, I think well, about, you know, yeah, the Brother work Kendi, of Ibram Kendi and, and Joma yeah. Lowe, you know, all of these writers, younger That's writers, true. and it was very gratifying to me one, to have, of course, to, you know, anytime, as you know, as a writer, anytime somebody is reading what you wrote, you're happy about that, right? You know, because Absolutely. that you put the ideas out there if you want them to be consumed. But, but at the same time, it was also very encouraging to me to see the next generation of thinkers being paid attention to. And that was just very exciting. I had the opportunity this summer to tune in to the, interview series that Ibram Kendi did. I know that he, I saw you and Eddie Glaude talking about his book, and it was just a great opportunity to just see and hear new voices exploring these ideas. And it makes me think about a conversation that we were having just before the program started. I was talking to Tricia about a presentation I heard today. Uh, I heard a presentation by a young scholar at Georgia State University, whose name is Dr. Goldie Muhammad. And she has written a book called Cultivating Genius. And it is grounded in her study of the literacy clubs of the 19th century. And she's really lifting up the, you know, the, these clubs that black women and black folks founded to expand literacy amongst themselves and to lift it up as an example of historical black academic excellence that wasn't rooted just in the ability to read, but was linked to critical thinking and self-empowerment and the idea of our identities as newly liberated people who need to know how to read in order to be able to shape the society that we want to have as our basis. And that what I found so fascinating and important about her presentation, and I know it's expanded upon in her book, is this notion that that same drive for empowerment needs to be the fuel for education of Black youth today. That it can't just be learn to read this book because you have to take the test tomorrow. It has to be rooted in this notion of the liberation, your self-liberation is dependent upon your ability to engage this material and think about it critically. Mm. And that's what these literacy clubs mm. were doing in the 19th century. And she's arguing that their example holds the key to yeah. the kind of effective education our kids need today. Wow. It was yeah. very powerful. Yeah, that's, um, I wrote that that's one powerful. down. We'll have to get that. Yeah, we've got, we've got, to, we've got to push that. But we should say that one more time. Her name in that book again. Her name is Goldie. That's spelled G H O L D Y, Goldie Muhammad, and the book is called Cultivating Genius. God yeah, I'm going to get God that for sure. We'll yes. have to read that, Cornell. Um, but tell me, absolutely, tell, Beverly. Tell me if you would, you know, a little bit more about what it would take. Let's assume that some form of a, a literacy club, right? Whatever we might say about what that should look like today, just, just hold it out there as a 21st century version. What are some of the 
if in your perspective, impediments for cultivating a, a literacy club? Because what, what first came to mind as you were talking was, wow, this is great. People are going to sit around reading books and, you know, they're going to read Cornell and, you know, they might read, you know, me and you, Beverly, you know, so I have my own little fantasy going on. Audrey Lord. Exactly. Right. See, thank you. You got it. You got it, everybody. Uh, but then I started thinking, you know, about the, as you pointed out, the generational shift that is the product of the context in which young people are coming of age. And you were focusing on a set of historical um, sort of crises or major turning points, right? 9-11, the financial yeah. crisis, you know, a, a black president, Trump, so on and so forth. But what about social media? What about the sort of commercialization and commodification of, mm. of black youth life, right? That is a constant lure. That's a constant attention sucking engine, right? To take that creativity of athletics and dance and poetry and music and make it available, which is wonderful, but also frankly manipulate it rather substantially towards some ends that I would say are quite decidedly not about literacy. <laughs> you know? Do you agree with that? Or do you have a critique of that? Or, and then depending on your answers to that question, well, how would we protect a literacy club today if you think they need that kind of space and barrier? Uh, and, and what might we do to, to foster that? Because I worry that sometimes we think it's just they don't know, but I think it's more than that. It's more about what's allowed to be in the frame and the pressures that are on young people in this context that I think are quite unique. I wanna dial your question back a little bit uh, because you're thinking about, as you're talking, and I, you know, I understand the question, but you're talking about adolescence, right? You know, sort of maybe middle school, high school and older. But I want to just lift up the crisis of literacy for kids who get to that age and can't read, right? So it's not just that they're distracted by social media, but they are functionally illiterate. Um, I live in the city of Atlanta and I was on a call earlier today where I received you know, basic data that was being shared about literacy rates in the city of Atlanta. Fourth grade proficiency. Uh, if you look at Atlanta children in the, you know, who are fourth grade, are they able to read at a fourth grade level? Well, 76% of white children in Atlanta are, that means 24% are not, and that's not so good, but only 16% of black students are. You know, if you're in the fourth grade and 84% of your classmates are not reading on a fourth grade level, that has implications for so many things. You know, you have, we talk a lot about third grade reading. You get to the third grade learning to read because when once you're in the third grade, you need to be able to read to learn, right? right. You need to be able to read to learn the social studies. You need to be able to right. be able to read to learn the science, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So whether you are reading at the third grade level or not is a really critical question. Now, a lot of people will say, so why, what is it? You know, why is it that 16, only 16% 16 of Atlanta public school students, black ones are reading on grade level? Does it have something to do with language? 
does it have something to do with the fact that parents are talking to their, I mean, they're, you know, who you talk to, will, you'll, some people will say, well, you know, we need a, a program where we're focused on early literacy and teaching parents to talk to their kids and oral language and reading and all of that. And I, I don't wanna, there's science to suggest that all of that's a factor. But we also have to look at, does the kid have a house to live in, a place to live? You know, is there food insecurity? Is the, you know, there are lots of factors that contribute to somebody's ability to be in school. Now in this COVID moment, so many people are worried about eviction, right? Haven't been able to pay their rent. Is eviction a concern? If you change schools, and of course kids are learning virtually and we know that that's a challenge too. Do they have digital access? Do they have what they need in order to be successful? All of that. But even if we were talking pre-COVID, let's take the COVID moment out of the picture for a moment. If we're talking pre-COVID and we're talking about, you know, our kids coming to school ready to gain the literacy they need. There are lots of literacy experts who would say there's early intervention that's needed. We need to focus on that. But I think it's also important to say that when we're talking to kids about reading, we have to ask, what are we asking them to read? Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you about another young person, uh, another brilliant young black woman I've met recently. Her name is Leah Hernandez. Leah is right out of, you know, three, four years out of college. She went to Clark Atlanta University, recently graduated, and she has started her own company, not-for-profit. It's called Young Authors Publishing. So what does Leah do? Leah works with middle school students to help them write their own books and get them published. And so far she has 25 authors and she's published 5,000 books. And not 5,000 individual stories, but you know, 5,000 uh, print run. But what she's found is that kids are excited about literacy when they're reading stories about themselves. Her, the model for her publishing company, her not-for-profit publishing company is every kid is story worthy, meaning every child deserves to have stories about them um, that they can connect to. And one data point that might be of interest relative to this is that if you're a black child looking at children's books at your local library or in the school library or wherever you have access to books, you're more likely to find books about white children and animals than you will about yourself. Mm -hmm. There are more books about animals as characters, featured characters, than there are about children of color, not just black children, black, Latinx, Asian, indigenous, um, you know, that represents maybe 7% of all of children's books. 25% are about animals, 50% feature white children. So, you know, the invisibility of the child in the context that they are being asked to engage is a factor. Whether they've had something to eat that morning is a factor, whether they've got some place to live is a factor. You know, all of those things are factors, but I think we don't spend enough time talking about what is it that we're asking kids to engage with in the learning process. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward, you know, as they get older, there are certainly the distractions of social media. Um, and, you know, social media has the, is the tool for sharing information, but also sharing disinformation. Uh, you know, it can be a distraction. 
it's also a tool from a, a vehicle through which racism is mediated. There's some research that I cite in my book, Where, Where Are All the Black Kids? Some recent research about how common it is for Black kids to encounter racist you know, comments in interactive media when they're online playing games, microaggressions coming mm -hmm. out the screen at you. So um, the fact of the matter is there's lots of things that put you at risk, but I think representation is an area that we don't pay enough attention to. And I've been very impressed with the work that Sister Leah is trying to do uh, right out of college to change that. Mm -hmm. well, you stay in contact with these young forces for good. I try. <laughs> source of hope. But I want to come back to uh, Sister Trisha's powerful phrase of attention sucking machine. Yes. Given the commodification, given the market culture. Because I think the market culture, it does function as a uh, proliferator of weapons of distraction, but it's also taken a form that has shattered families and communities. So many of our precious young people are unloved. I mean, I've been blessed to teach in prison for 37 years, so I understand the challenge of the literacy and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. But I think of myself, and I'm sure it's true for you all as well. See, as long as I got love for mom and dad and the little league coach and Deacon Hinton, I could read Cat on the Hat and don't feel like I need to read about black yes. folk. It, it's yes. a good thing to read about black folk. But I could read Cat on the Hat and Dr. Seuss, so I could yes. read Kierkegaard. I already had all the love I need. You know what I mean? I ain't looking for no book to try to provide my identity and people looking like me. I know how sick white supremacy is, so I put that in context. But yes. once we get young folk who haven't been loved enough, haven't been cared for enough, haven't been affirmed enough in a concrete way, physically, touched constantly and consistently. You see what I mean? Yes, yes. Then we find ourselves where representation becomes very important, but that representation can never become a displacement from that concrete affirmation with, with bodies who really care and tend for this. Yes, yes. That notion of, again, coming back to, we all want to be seen, heard, understood. Absolutely. You I know, we, we all want to have that affirmation in the context of relationship. There's Absolutely. No doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And how do you get that back? Because see, even in the 19th century, the young sister written this powerful text on, on, on cultivating genius, we, we had stronger families, communities. I mean, I mean, Ida, Ida B. Wells Barnett, one of the greatest intellectuals of the 20th century, taught Sunday school every Sunday. Yeah. She taught vacation Bible school on the, in the summertime. So she's teaching folk how to read outside of her own family and context and network, but within the community as a whole, as very much like what you did at Spelman, servant leadership. You see, being of service yes. to the least of these, you know? And certainly we see that exaggerated, that need for connection exaggerated in this COVID moment when people are so isolated from one another. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, I, I, in, uh, I know we, we're, we have to go fairly soon, but I wanted to in invite you to, to extend this part of the conversation and in terms of helping parents and families think about maybe, maybe they're not ready to join a literacy club, maybe they haven't gotten to that yet, but what else can they do? Because, you know, I think when we talk about families being destroyed, I want to make sure we add the footnote that this has been a systemic practice of, of assault. 
that has destroyed families. People are not just falling apart because they got a bad culture. They're not just dissembling, you know, for no good reason. They're being literally separated, incarcerated, health is being destroyed for, and there's all kinds of systematic practices. And so what, what can people do? You talk about, you know, in your most more recent book around conversations around school resegregation, are there opportunities that exist now for that parents should be focusing on or communities, families, neighborhoods should be focusing on that we can invite them to consider knowing what we know about all the kinds of pressures that they're under? You know, this is a it's a big question because we all have I say this in my book, Why Roll the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and other conversations about race. I talk about the fact that we all have spheres of influence. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that each one of us influences someone. Uh, some of us influence a lot of people. You know, some of us have a big platform from which we are able to share ideas and talk to one another. Others of us are maybe our sphere of influence is family members and friends and our church members, you know, or the other communities of which we are a part. But each of us has a place where we can impact others. Right. So maybe that impact is in sharing of information about where to get food if you're food insecure. Maybe that impact is sharing about how to engage in the school as a member of the parents association and speaking up to the principal and getting to be an advocate. You know, one of the, my mother to use her as an example became the first woman to be elected to the school board in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. The first woman and certainly the first person of color. And why did she run for school board was because she was concerned about how her kids were being dealt with in the school district. You know, she was speaking up, she was going to those meetings and then someone said, you know, you've got a lot to say, why don't you run? You know? <laughs> and, so, um, and so she did. But this is to say, all of us have that opportunity to be in places where we can say, what about this? You know, I have a question. Um, and not all of us feel empowered to do that, but we can empower each other. You mentioned, Cornell, I'm keeping my ear to the ground. You know, I found out about Dr. Muhammad's book today. I told, you know, I haven't read it yet, but I heard her presentation, but here I am talking to you about it because I have a sphere of influence and I think more people should know about her work, you know, and I met Leah Hernandez and her young authors publishing not that long ago. And every time I have a chance to talk about it, I mention it because she needs visibility. And so there are ways that we all can influence and open doors and expand opportunity but sometimes it's, you know, it might seem like a small thing, but it matters to people. It matters to people. One of the things that I think about is how can we use our spheres of influence, whatever they are, to make an impact on the thing that we're concerned about. If I'm concerned about people having accurate information about COVID and vaccination, how do I use the platform I have to talk about that? you know, if I have yeah. that as a concern. So there's so many people often ask me, what can I do about racism? You know, how can I interrupt the cycle of racism? Yeah. And I always say there's so many, there's so many ways that racism manifests in our society. The question is, 
where do you feel like you have some influence that you can push on? You know, what button can you push on? You know, I'm right. pushing on this button, but that doesn't mean there aren't 10 other buttons or not 99 other buttons that need pushing, you know, so which one is the one that you want to push on and where you feel like you can make a difference. Right. That right. to me, that's the critical question. It's like, what corner of the world can I clean up? You know, where mm -hmm. can I make an impact? And that is the question each of us can ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no shortage of streets needing sweeping, let me tell you. Well, I tell you, we could talk to Sister Tatum for hours in terms I know, of what sustains her hope and how she has been able to uh, bear witness at this level for so long. And that's so true. That's probably um, something that speaks to all of us right now in these grim moments, you know, that you're. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, after putting in those years of spam, but they would have just disappeared somewhere. You know what I mean? Gone off to Martha's Vineyard, just got lost for about 10, 15 years. You know what I mean? Uh, I oh, know. That's sounding pretty no. good, Cornell. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't encourage us. Uh, don't encourage us. <laughs> Brother Travis and the two kids, you just right there still in That's the right. midst of the struggle with your own right. uh, integrity and grace and uh, yeah. dignity. Yeah, we're so lucky. We're so lucky to have you and so grateful to have you on the show and your work and it's the reception of it is a testament to the, the fundamental contribution that it makes that is so necessary and so frequently overlooked or you know sidetracked in some way so we're we're thrilled about that and we learned something new today i know i'm excited to 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 really operationalize Absolutely. it and uh and we're just thrilled you could join us on the tightrope and we hope you'll come back anytime you know you're welcome well listen i have you know a friend of mine said if you make a lot of withdrawals put out a lot of energy you need to make a lot of deposits and i consider this to have been a deposit so i really want to thank you for that Mm, our pleasure entirely. Oh, our we, we, we love and respect you. We salute you. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Tatum. We'll see you again soon. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on the tightrope. We had a lovely time talking with Dr. Tatum and of course with my amazing co-host, Dr. Cornell West. It's a joy to be with you all the time. Thank you for being with us and Cornell, I'll see you again soon, right? Absolutely, my dear sister, Tricia. We'll be All together right. soon. All right. We're going to do it. All right. Bye-bye, <laughs> everybody. Thanks for joining us.